This is a, an enjoyable part of the year, all of the year is, but uh, if you've been with us at Grace Covenant, you know that our regular practice is to work through particular books most of the time. Uh, we have just finished a couple of year series in the Gospel of John. Uh, this fall we'll begin uh, a study in the, the book of Romans, which will probably take us uh, about two years to work our way through. But in the summer times, we take a break from our regular studies. And most of the time, our pattern is to just work our way through various psalms. A lot of the scripture teaches us what we need to know about God and what we need to do. But the psalms, while they include that, they are something different as well. Because the psalms give voice to what you and I often feel. The psalms enable us to identify because they identify with us. And a lot of the things that we wonder about spiritually whether, can I do this? Can I really feel this? Is this okay? Is this normal? They are expressed in the Psalms. And so I find particular delight in working our way through the Psalms. Working our way through is probably, well, probably is a a wrong way of looking at it. Um, This morning we're in Psalm 1. Last week we were in Psalm 19. Um, And that probably tells you all you need to know about the way we work through, which is haphazardly and at the I'm going to call it the, the, uh, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and whoever's speaking. Um, but uh, we will be looking at a variety of psalms during the course of this summer. And so I, I hope that you'll be uh, encouraged by and blessed as we look at this portion of the scriptures. Uh, this morning we're looking at Psalm 1, a psalm that many Bible scholars call the psalm of psalms. Uh, simply because Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are the psalms that scholars say really lead us in. They provide a framework for every other psalm uh, that we will sing. It's, it's the, the framework for the Psalter, the, the songbook collected in the scriptures. And so while we look at this passage that gives us an overarching framework of life and particularly a Christian life, life in God's presence, we also see some very pertinent and practical encouragements uh, from this passage. So we're going to read Psalm 1 this morning. Hear the word of God. Blessed is the man who's walk, who, who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Let's pray. Father, we do come to you with thanksgiving that you, uh, who transcend any imagination or sense that we might have, has revealed himself to us by your work in creation, by your word and perfectly in the person of Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that as we take this time to consider the word that you have recorded for us, the wisdom that has been written down and handed down through the ages. You will open and enlighten our minds to truth, for you are truth. And you will stir our hearts and conform them 
to become like Christ, to be conformed to godliness. For in that is the joy that we so desperately want. And may we recognize your greatness and your goodness and learn and be renewed to rest in them. Lord, may you be blessed as we give our minds and our hearts to this word, listening, for it is your word to us. May we find that your promise that your word never comes back empty, but is at work, sharpening, building, shaping. May we find that to be true in our lives and in this church. We pray all of this to your glory and our good in Christ Jesus. Amen. Listen to these words. I shall be telling this with a sigh. Somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverge in the woods, and I, I took the one less traveled by. That has made all the difference. Now, most of you are going to recognize those as the very well-known last refrain from Robert Frost's poem, The The Road Less Traveled. It's considered by many to be the favorite and the most popular poem in the American anthology. Google Metrics said before they closed down that, you know, if you remember a few years ago, you could look at Google and it would tell you how many times a phrase or something had been searched. But at the time that that was measured, uh, it said that this poem was looked up more than four times as many times as the next most popular uh, poem in, uh, in America. And the thing that is less known is, than its popularity is that it was ostensibly written as a, as a joke. It was a, a lark that Robert Frost was poking fun at a friend of his who he apparently would regularly go on hikes, but his friend was incredibly indecisive. And whenever they would get to different points on the trail, he wasn't sure which way he would go. And when they would pick one way, then he would be wondering what was down the other trail. And he would talk about it incessantly as they were walking along the trail. And so Frost wrote this really as a lark for his friend and, uh, and to, to kind of poke fun at him at his indecisiveness and left us with words that are some of the uh, most popular and most um, uh, visible in, uh, in, in all of literature. Because you see the evidence of them, not only in, in titles of TV shows and, and books and of movies and songs, we see them in TV com- and commercials and, and any number of different things that are around us. And so these words that convey this idea, and perhaps it's because it speaks so much to us, because every one of us faces choices and decisions every day of our lives. I'm not sure if there were any other motives that Frost had in writing the poem other than to poke fun at his friend. And I doubt this was among his motives. But it would certainly be a great setup for Psalm 1 that we are considering here this morning. Because the scripture repeatedly tells us that there is a stark contrast between the two different paths that we have before us every day and every moment of our lives. 
And these two paths lead to two different kinds of life. One, as we will see listed here today, is, is essentially a wasted life. And the other, as the psalmist refers to it, is the blessed life. The reality is most of us feel inside that there must be some way that we can live our lives and to do it well and to, to do it right. Uh, a way to live that ultimately leads to what we are longing for. And Psalm 1 leads us into the life we want, leads us into uh, what we would call the truly, the, the good life. And what I want us to see this morning is this, is that when Jesus invites us to follow me, follow uh, him, he is reminding us, or we see in, in that invitation, that Christianity is a, a way of life. It's not just a, a set of beliefs. It's not a set of rituals or practices, although those things are part of this way of life. But it is entirely a, a way of life. And it's a way of life to lead that leads to what we are longing for. And someone invites us onto that path and into that destiny. As we look at this passage, there's a couple of things that we, we need to see. And, and there's some implications or, or principles that we see in this passage. And the first one that we need to be clear about, at least according, is, is this. According to the Bible, there are only two ways. There is no third way for us to do life. We either are on the path to do, to, for, of the blessed life or we are on the path of a wasted life. And the characteristics of both are embedded in these first two verses. The characteristics of the wasted life we, we see here in, in verse 1. Uh, somebody who walks in the counsel of the wicked and stands in the way of sinners or uh, sits in the seat of scoffers. And Bible scholars will tell us that it's not necessarily a progression. There definitely is a progression here. But people can start at any point. People can engage in one and perhaps not the others. But these are the characteristics of what ultimately lead to destruction and, and to death, a, a life that in the end, no matter how much energy has been expended, it has been wasted because it doesn't lead to anything. It leads to, to nothingness. What are these characteristics themselves? What do they mean? I mean, they're poetic. Now, there certainly is a number of things that we see in there. We begin, just there's the, 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 the grades that we see, uh, begin by uh, walking and then standing and then sitting. You get the idea of somebody who's kind of on a journey, not sure where they're, where they're going, and then kind of standing is not somebody who hasn't yet embarked on a journey, but they got some place they feel pretty comfortable with. And when they're finally sitting down, it's because they're, they're thoroughly comfortable with uh, where they are in that way of life. Bible scholar John Goldengay says this, that walking in the counsel of the wicked is somebody who is seeking advice for life from the ungodly. Now, it doesn't mean that we can't find wisdom in, around us, even from those who are not believers. We absolutely can. And it's important sometimes as Christians that we are reminded that the Proverbs that we have collected for us were collected by Solomon that weren't just things that he set up one day and decided, what am I going to send out on my Twitter today? But whenever he would hear wisdom in his engagement of the nations, he would write that down. And so much of the wisdom that is collected 
uh, is from even pagan sources. It's just a matter of God is gracious and that there are people everywhere who have understood some good principles of life. But all truth is God's truth. All wisdom is God's wisdom. And so Solomon collected those and gave them to us. And the issue is not whether there are tidbits of wisdom or even significant parts of wisdom that can be found anywhere in the world through any religion and any faith. The issue is whether or not as you build your life that you are going to be building them on the foundation of the wisdom of one who does not know God and therefore is not pursuing God and therefore will not find God. And then the steps along the way that lead you away from God and will lead you away from what ultimately is good and is blessed. We're wise to discern the advice that we are receiving and the sources where we are seeking it. Being aware of that enables us to see whether the advice that we have found is in accordance with the revelation and the wisdom of God as he has revealed it. And so the wisdom of walking in the counsel of the wicked is not just taking pieces of advice, but letting those who do not know God to dictate the path that you lead and the way that you walk on it. The second characteristic is standing in the way of sinners. And this is simply, simply put, is somebody who has no problem and is, is standing with those who are in moral failure. Now, we're not talking about those who have fallen, those who have plunged, those who are dealing with their brokenness. Of course, we're called to do that. But somebody who sees no problem with lives that are lived contrary to the standards that God has given to us and hang out and embrace thinking that there's no problem with living a life that is contrary to God's way. And the third categorization is sitting in a seat of scoffers is when we get our identity primarily from something other than God himself and we participate in the mockery of God and of the ways of God. And the psalmist here is saying that any and all of those attributes are characteristics. It's a path that leads to death and destruction. And he goes on in verse 4 and he says they're, they're like chaff. And he gives us the image of that for us to understand the destiny of those who choose that way of life to live on that path. Now, for those of us who didn't grow up on farms, maybe the first question we need to ask is, what exactly is chaff? Uh, many of you grew up on farms, and, you know, it's like second nature. Those of us who grew up in suburban areas, uh, you know, we didn't have a lot that uh, was, wasn't a part of uh, uh, our day-to-day -day experience. And so I looked it up just so I could give you a clear definition. I had a good idea, uh, but I, I decided I, I probably better, better look it up. And I'm told this, is chaff is the dry, scaly, protective casing of seeds of grain or similar fine, dry, scaly plant materials, such as scaly parts of flowers and finely chopped straw. Uh, the only thing I could think of that comes in, is, you know, when you take a peanut out of a shell and it's got that wrapping around it, whether you eat it or not, 
uh, it's, it's a casing over that. And this is a casing of different kinds of grain. So as I understand that when farmers go to the harvest, one of the things that they, uh, experienced farmers, make sure that they uh, protect themselves from is uh, just the, the, the chaff that is now blowing in the wind. Because when they cut the grain down and they put the grains into uh, the truck that is hauling it off, the chaff comes separated from the wheat or the grains that they're, they're trying to carry, and they just kind of hover in the air, kind of like the pollen that we have seen throughout the spring uh, here in Williamsburg with the, the puffs of yellow. Um, it's pretty until you get a whiff of it. Um, and I understand that it's the same thing with pollen, and it's what we're told it's just kind of there. And, and so farmers, they figure out not only where they want to park the truck, they'll figure out which way the wind is blowing so that they are upwind so that when the pollen is blowing, they're not up all night also blowing their nose from the allergies that they have. But, but the issue here is saying is that those who are familiar with this chaff, they, they realize that this chaff is worthless. It's irritating. And ultimately it just blows away and kind of like disappears as if it never existed. The value is in something else. And the psalmist is telling us that those who choose the path of the wasted life, that is the destiny, that ultimately they are, are destroyed. And as far as history will record, as far as, uh, as um, God is concerned, it's almost as if they had never existed. There is no value. There is no uh, great um, reward for um, the life that follows the path of the wasted life. But the psalmist then also gives us characteristics that are true of the blessed life. We see those in verse 2. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on the Lord's law he meditates day and night. Now, it's important that we understand what the psalmist is saying here and what he's not saying here. Because we look at this passage, and most of us, if we're honest, are quite uninspired by this picture. His delight is in the law of the Lord. I, it just In my head, I just imagine somebody who's picking up a rule book and reading through it and saying, oh, oh, this is, I mean, my heart is just moved, whatever, whatever the rules may be. Could be your, you know, your driving handbook, so you learn the laws of, of speed limits. If you want to be baseball umpire, have uh, rule books for baseball, and just reading through this as if it's devotional material. Because the fact is, who, who loves law? I mean, at least in theory. I mean, I read of new laws that sometimes get enacted in, in the city, and I can't remember ever saying, oh, wow, my life is all the better now because we have this new law. Now, of course, our lives are better because any good law has a positive impact. But our hearts don't usually go there. We don't usually see those and say, now I delight. And we see the whole idea of being a follower of God, the good life, as somebody loves law. It might be helpful if we know exactly what he's saying. And the Hebrew word here for law that is used twice is the word Torah, which does mean law, but it's also translated as teaching or refers to scripture as a whole. Those of you who are familiar with uh, with um, the ancient Jewish practices, the Torah, even present Jewish practices, the Torah is the first five books of the scripture, sometimes known as the books of the law, because the law is contained in there, but there's much more than just law. There's also birth records. Those are exciting, too, for many people. But there's also a wealth of instruction. 
So the totality of those books is what the psalmist has in mind, that they delight in the teachings of the Lord. But even still, that may be somewhat uninspiring. The whole idea of just reading through and our delight is in those things, particularly as it, as it pertains to law. What would it be that would make us delight in the instructions? And I think, therefore, it would be helpful for us to know the purpose of the law that God has given us. I mean, we rightly chafe at this idea. Those of you who are Bible students certainly have come across the, the teaching that we have in, in 2 Corinthians 3, 6. It says the law brings death. Who needs that? But 1 Timothy 1.8 also tells us this. Now we know the law is good if it's used properly or lawfully. In other words, there is a right way to use the law in a way that is good, that does bring delight. There are many ways to use the law that actually kill and that bring dread. But there is a right way. And, and historically understood, we, we see that God has revealed in the scripture that there are three primary uses of the law that really form uh, to working together, give us reason for delight. Number one is that the law of God, every one of the laws, no matter how mundane and, and how archaic they may seem, every one of them is a reflection of the character of God. So when you read a law, and even when you read of a consequence and a punishment, we need to ask ourselves, what does it tell me about God? What is this about the character of God and what is it about the heart of God that I see revealed in this law? And the more severe the penalty for violating it, the more we see that it's closer to the heart of God. But every law is a reflection of the character of God. And when we begin to see God in the laws, when we begin to get past the specific statements and begin to see the revelation of God, that itself can become our delight because as we are awed by God, we are also delighted by God that he has brought us into relationship with himself through Jesus Christ. So the first use of the law is that it reveals something about God. The second use of the law is that the law does exactly what we're warned and we don't like about it. It kills. The law breaks us, but it drives us to the cross where we find hope. In other words, the law points out what is wrong within you and the law points out what is wrong within me it's not that there was nothing wrong with me before I learned the law the problems were already there I either didn't recognize them or I didn't know what they were called but when the law shines its light upon the flaws within me the ways of in me that are contrary to the ways of God then I have to deal with it if I deal with it biblically I have to recognize well here's the wage of any way that is not conformity to God I deserve to die I'm broken. I have no hope. Because it's not like I can fix what I broke. Because even if I live perfectly from then on, I still can't make up for what I've done because I'm called to live perfectly anyway. And so I'm in a condition where I'm looking for a lifeline. And that opens me to the lifeline that God has given in the person of Jesus Christ who came despite the fact that he knew no sin. He was perfect. He became sin. In other words, he took our sin, the guilt of it, the record of it upon himself. And then he was crushed in our place. And by faith, we are not only forgiven because Christ paid the penalty. We are told in the scriptures that we are credited with his life. 
his perfection. And therefore, we are reconciled to God by confessing our sin and believing in the lifeline that God has sent in Jesus Christ. So the first use of the law is to recognize the law tells us about God. The second use of the law is that it breaks us and drives us to the cross, not just at the time of our conversion, but every day that we live and breathe. And the third use of the law is that it guides the way that we live our lives and enables us to give thanks to God. See, Jesus asks a, 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 answers a question with a statement and an instruction that he gives. If you love me, keep my commandments. Now, we read that saying, if you want me to love you, then do what I've told you. That's not what Jesus says, and it's not the way God works. Jesus says, if you love me, in other words, if you have been broken in your sin and you've seen the glory of God revealed in the person of Christ who has taken the penalty of your sin upon himself, died for you, and then gave you life simply because you believed and trusted in him, and then you want to say, thanks, how do you do that? I mean, what words would you have that would be adequate? And Jesus is giving us the answer. It's not about the words, although the words of praise and thanksgiving are part of our worship. Jesus says, just do what I've told you to do. And the irony in that is that when we do that, we find by living our lives according to the word, according to the law of God, that we actually find joy and freedom and prosperity and success, even if at times it's mixed with the hardships that everybody experiences and sometimes opposition and oppression. We find that God is faithful to sustain us through that. And he guides us the way that we are to live our lives, whatever the circumstance that we have. And in living in accordance to what he's saying, God has said, this is the way you say thanks. This is the way you say, I love you. And then it leads us back to begin wondering again, what is it about this God? And then if you want to know about God, you go back to the beginning and consider his laws. And the psalmist is saying here that the person who considers the law, the teaching, the instruction of God, the one who's been broken, has gone to the cross, the one who has found hope, has found delight in his law. And because it is his delight, he's thinking about them day and night. Now, it doesn't mean that he has to get up first thing in the morning and the last thing that he does at night. It might be that. That's not a bad pattern. But he's just saying that it's constantly on his mind. That when he has an opportunity a free time. He's meditating. He's thinking about these things. And when he or she um, cultivates they, they th- a time to, to be thinking about these things because it is the delight of his or her life. And when this, here in the passage, the scripture says a person who does this, we see it in verse 3, is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields fruit in season, its leaf does not wither, and all he does is prosper. If you and I are going to prosper as people, if we're going to become the people that we want to be, we need for God to plant us near the streams of his grace. Whether that's gathering regularly in worship, it's feeding on his word. It's time and conversation through prayer. There's a number of ways in which we can receive and experience God's grace, but we need to be planted near those. And when we are, we are constantly benefited by being nourished and drawing the the sustenance of the power of God through his means of grace. 
And for some of us, that means that we probably need to be uprooted and, and transplanted. That all of us are in need to be planted near those streams. But when we are planted near those streams, when we are drawing upon his grace, it's then that the Lord and his law becomes our delight. There's another implication that's embedded in this. And first and foremost is we need to recognize that there is only two ways. You have a path as you're standing there each day, moment by moment. Path for a lifetime, path for the day, and we choose. The blessed life, the good life, or the wicked life. But on the blessed life, one of the things that we see as characteristic is meditation. We, we see he's meditating on God's instruction. And so we see not only that there's only two choices and only one way that leads to the blessed life, according to the psalmist, but we see, according to Psalm 1, that meditation is important, that meditation matters. Now, for some of us, the whole idea of meditation seems a little bit creepy or freaky. I mean, the whole idea of it just, it just seems so new age-ish. Or mind-numbing, just supposed to sit there and chant and hum or, or whatever is done in, in different ways of, of practicing this. I mean, there's many reasons that some of us might have at hearing that idea that this is to be a practice of our lives. And we might not connect with it right away. But we can't mistake that the psalmist is saying that it's important. And frankly, I think that it's to the detriment of our, our culture and to the contemporary church that it's not a regular or frequent practice. And the psalmist is calling us to it. Now in his book called Eat This Book by Eugene Peterson, it's about spiritual disciplines and Eugene Peterson thinks differently than most people. Um, so just kind of got a roll with what he's doing. Uh, he tells a story about Plato as the new technology, uh, the, the written word uh, and, and books uh, were coming into vogue in his day. And Peterson uh, tells uh, this, this story. Here, here's what Peterson writes. Plato, writing at the moment when primarily, a primarily oral culture was giving way to writing, had the astute observation that writing was going to debilitate memory. Ivan Illich characterizes him as the first uneasy man of letters. For Plato observed how his students rely on silent, passive texts that narrowed the stream of the remembrance, making it shallow and dull. When words were primarily exchanged by voice and ears, language was living and kept alive by habits of speaking and listening. But the moment that words were written, memory was bound by atrophy. We would no longer remember what was said. We could look it up in a book. And books rob us of the right and pleasure of answering back. And here's what is, I think, somewhat ironic that, uh, that um, Peterson was pointing out 
Plato made this observation by telling a story that we can now look up in his book, Phaedrus. And, and so what was going on in that day is the, the culture was transitioning to the written word as the way of communication and recording things rather than passing down through oral tradition. And, and Plato said, you know, when that happens, we're not going to have to remember. We're not going to have to think. We're not going to have to internalize because everything is out there for us written down somewhere. You can only imagine what he would be thinking if he came today. Siri, tell me, you know, anyway. Um, and the things that we have that cause atrophy uh, within our, our thinking and therefore uh, the uses of our minds. And I think that history has borne some of that out because meditation has declined certainly in the West. It's not a practice that we engage in. It still doesn't tell us what meditation is. And one of the things that we need to recognize is that meditation is neither simply reading scripture, nor is it simply prayer. But it's a weird combination of the both which makes it something else entirely. And another one of his books, Peterson, gives us a picture of what, how he came to understand what meditation is like. And he, he tells a story, he tells anybody uh, that has seen a dog with a bone, that from that we can understand what meditation is like. And here's what Peterson says. Peterson tells the story of a little dog who had a fondness for large bones. All dog owners know the routine. The little dog would prance and gamble with the prize, wagging his tail, kind of thinking, and, and you know, what a good dog you are. And then he would drag the bone off into some private place and go to work. He'd gnaw on it. He would turn it over. He would lick it, and he would growl. One day while reading the prophet Isaiah, Peterson came across this phrase. As a lion growls over his prey, from Isaiah 31.4, Peterson thought of his little dog and this word growl, and it caught his attention. And he said, what my dog does over his precious bone, Isaiah's lion did to his prey. But the real nugget of delight was when Peterson noticed that the Hebrew word translated growl was the same Hebrew word translated meditate in Psalm 1. Peterson thought, blessed is the man whose delight is in the word of God on which he, like a dog with a bone, gnaws on, meditates day and night. And there's a picture of what the psalmist is inviting us to. Is that when we find the truth of God, whether it's a question or an insight, and we just mull it over and we look at it from different angles, and sometimes we lick it, sometimes we chew on it, we gnaw on it, but it stays with us. And we continue that until we ingest it. And when we ingest it, it nourishes us, and it nourishes us, and it brings transformation. And it, the psalmist is saying to us, blessed is the man who gnaws on God's word. doesn't mean swallow it to begin with, but choose on it for a while. And we need to understand this is the primary difference between 
what the Bible talks about as meditation and what we hear about, whether it's New Age or Eastern meditation. In New Age or Eastern meditation, the whole idea is to sit someplace in a lotus position and quietly purge your mind of all thought. In biblical meditation, yeah, we, we are supposed to purge our minds, but we purge our minds of lies. And we refill it with truth that God has revealed to us. And we speak that truth to ourselves and we gnaw on it day and night. And we chew on it until the truth becomes our thoughts. British pastor from previous generation, Martin Lloyd-Jones, kind of says the same thing. He doesn't talk about it in a context of, of, of uh, meditation, but he says, don't you realize that most of the problems you have in this life is because you're spending too much time listening to yourself and not enough time talking to yourself. For those of us that want life and we realize we're all going to find problems and difficulties and lies come into our head and we kind of go with them or we leave them unchecked. The idea of meditating on God's truth, God's truth sometimes will confront our own thoughts. We need to speak God's truth to ourselves, gnaw on that truth until our thoughts are replaced or in conformity to what God has said. And that brings us delight. That changes us, that shapes us. And that's what it means to meditate. You chew on God's word, God's truth, until it metabolizes and empowers you to live the life that you want to live, that God is calling you to live. Now, sometimes we go through dry seasons, or sometimes God may seem far. At least that happens to me. And if you've ever experienced that, or if you're in that season now, some of the questions that we need to ask ourselves is, well, okay, where is my delight? Because that's an important question. You need to know, what is it you're delighting in? And if you're not sure what you're delighting in, well, then the question is this, what are you chewing on? What are you spending your time thinking about and doing? Because we spend our time doing the things that we delight in. And some of the things that we are, therefore, by that definition, delighting in are actually the things that are destroying us or causing us depression and discouragement. But the answer to those questions are, are vitally important. Is, and then the other question is this, am I planted near streams of God's grace? Am I even camping near them on weekends? Do I need to be transplanted? Those three questions will re restore us in many ways and leads us to the last thing that I want us to see. We're not gonna talk about it very long. I'm already over time. But I think we see a principle here is that our days determine our decades and our destiny. And what I mean by that is, is we see the image here. Trees planted by streams grow strong and majestic over time. Because though it appears they're being passive and doing nothing, they are being nourished. They are drawing sustenance that God has provided for them from the stream and everything that is in the stream. They're drinking it in. They're being nourished. The source is vital, but so is the rhythm of life and the activities they are engaged in. I started thinking about this, and for whatever reason, uh, flashback to high school, uh, came back, and uh, my high school football coach in Nashville, Tennessee, I remember him just gathering everybody together after the first, first day of the off-season, standing in the weight room that was overlooking the, the, the uh, basketball court. He just points over to some of the 
machines for the weightlifting and the benches and whatever, and he leans on one and says, this is not a magic machine. Simply being in its presence and leaning on it will do you no good whatsoever, no matter how much time you, you dwell there. You either engage it or you get no benefit from it. And I started thinking about the tree that is in this plant and realizing that it's the same principle for us. The fact that we sit someplace or that we, we go someplace, the fact that we're near, the question is first, are we in proximity to it? Are we drawing from it? And if we are, we will see the transformation that takes place over time in our lives. That is the promise that seems to be implied by the psalmist here. We recognize as we look at the psalm that following Jesus, being in presence of God, is a way of life that changes everything. And when we engage and see what is the way of the path of, that leads to the good life, we recognize that it gives us the deep, deep satisfaction and the joy that we all so much long for. And the psalmist is simply giving us language. He's expressing our own feeling, our own desire, while he's pointing us and giving us wisdom. Blessed is the man or woman who delights in the Lord and meditates on the Lord's ways and truth day and night. Father, bless us, we pray, this day. Plant us where you need us to be, but plant us near the streams of your grace that we may grow strong and with joy delighting in you. We pray in Christ. Amen. Please stand as we sing our song of dismissal.